with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, we will actually read the entire chapter just because uh, we had to break in the middle uh, last week uh, with, our, with our text, um, with uh, um, the... Uh, Uzzah, with Uzzah dying because of uh, his uh, um, because of his sin before the Lord, and we left off with the ark being left in the house of Obed Edom. But I, so I want to give us the the whole context again. So Second Samuel chapter six, we will read uh, through the we will read the entire chapter, which is twenty three verses. The reason I tell you that is because I am going to ask you, if you're physically able to do so, to stand with me. As we honor God's word, and so let's, let's stand and honor God's word. Second Samuel chapter 6, hear the word of the Lord that's given to us this morning. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people and were, that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, and that, that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and trembles and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day, literally violent outburst against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord to him in the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertains to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness, or literally with joy. And it was so that when they had bore the ark of the Lord, had, that they that bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was girded or robed with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place and in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of the offering, burned of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dwelt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well uh, to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and, a, and a, a piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. And so all the people departed, everyone to his home. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, 
It was before the Lord which chose me before your father and before all this house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will, I will yet be more vile than this, and will be base in my own sight, and of the handmaids which you have spoken of, of them which I shall be had in honor. <clears throat> and therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that has come to us in Christ. May you now bless the reading of your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. you. can be seated. Joy is a part of our relationship with God that, by and large, um, is simply not understood, and in fact cannot be understood by, by mankind in general or mankind in their, in their representative religions uh, or their relationships to their pagan and false gods. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say that joy, true joy that we experience in Christ um, baffles even the greatest enemies of the Christian faith. It baffles those who have given themselves over to resist the Lord. It baffles them because even in the face of impending death and doom, in the face of impending disaster, as God's people, we can rejoice in Christ it is because our joy is centered and grounded and founded upon Jesus Christ. And I think it's, it's Dr. R.C. Sproul who said it best when he was speaking of this, this idea of our joy in Christ, when he said, The key to the Christian's joy is its source, which is the Lord. If Christ is in me and I am in him, that relationship is not a sometimes experience. The Christian is always in the Lord, and the Lord is always in the Christian, and that is always a reason for joy. Even if the Christian cannot rejoice in his circumstances, even if he finds himself passing through pain and sorrow or grief, he can still as yet rejoice in Christ. And so we rejoice in Christ, and rejoice in the Lord, and since he never leaves us or forsakes us, we rejoice always. I think it's a great quote for us to set our minds upon as we set our minds and our hearts upon this text this morning. With this, with this mind, I think it shows us, I think there are two powerful truths in our text that we have got to see this morning. Because you would think that in the text that I read that it would be rather straightforward. But as you actually dig, start digging into the text, right, I think there are a whole lot of applications and implications from our text that we desperately need to see. And so this morning, I've titled the sermon, Our Joy in, in God. And the first, the first point I want to deal with is simply this, the joy of humility, the joy of humility. We find that in verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6, as David begins to hear, as David again hears of God's blessing uh, of Obed-Edom with, and the ark that there, and Obed-Edom's blessing because of the ark that has come. And it's amazing that... We come to the text here and we see just the absolute joy that David experiences in the midst of his, of his obedience to the Lord, his, his desire to follow the Lord, his desire to honor the Lord, his desire to come before the Lord, this absolute joy in obedience. I don't know if you know this, but there are actually five participles here. Now, if you don't want a participle, don't worry about it. I will explain in just a moment. 
but but the, there's joy that is here, right? Because all of these are meant to 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 do one thing. All five of these that are mentioned here throughout the text uh, that David does and David is participating in is meant to focus upon upon his joy in the Lord, right? And so if you notice in verse 14, it talks about that David danced before the Lord or that David was wearing a linen ephod or that David brought the ark or that David was leaping before the Lord and David was whirling before the Lord, right? These are all, these are all uh, words being used to describe, right, what was happening and what was taking place. The greater reality of David's joy in, in, the, Lord, in the Lord himself, David's, David's excitement, his emotional uh, excitement, his, his, his spiritual excitement, you know, I, I literally this week, as I was researching, as I was researching and, and just just studying, I literally ran across a preacher who preached an entire text on why what David did was a sin for dancing before the Lord. And I thought, buddy, you have completely missed the boat on what this text is talking about. It's amazing how how ridiculous people can become with this stuff. But the reality is, is that David did dance, and David did whirl, and David did leap, and David did, David did all of these things. He sang, and he, he did all of these things because his joy was ex- being expressed externally in the joy of the Lord that was given to him, right? This wasn't some emotionalism that was some kind of, that was somehow foamed up within him. Like somebody wasn't up there. It was like, you know, if you love your mama and Jesus, won't you come down the aisle? This wasn't foolish stuff like that, right? This wasn't like, don't you want to see your grandma in heaven one day kind of foolishness, right? This was joy that was, that was being brought out of him by the Lord because of, of his joy in the Lord and his joy in obeying the Lord, his joy in finding that it was not, it, it was the Lord fulfilling his promises. It was the Lord fulfilling everything that David had desired to do for the Lord that David now in the power and the spirit of the Lord he expresses his worship and I know as Baptists sometimes that this makes us a little uneasy right because I know that there and I'm not saying we should be doing this every week that's not the point but but it is there right it is in the text right it, it is in the text and this shouldn't make us uncomfortable right because we should realize that 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 even if we're very quiet like we tend to be here and there's nothing wrong with that we tend to be very quiet people and 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 that's fine but 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 the reality is that whether we're quiet in our rejoicing or we're expressive like david in our rejoicing our 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 rejoicing in the lord must be the foundation from which we worship right we must worship from, from the grounds of, of Christ in us, of, of Christ through us, of Christ above us and around us and in us and under us, girding us, uh, 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 yes, girding us, uh, uh, bearing us up always. I think it's interesting that Dr. Sam Storms, um, I think, made, makes a great point here when he says, our joy is not in our experience of joy, our joy is in who God is, his beauty, his majesty, his love, his grace, his power, his promises, and all that he has revealed himself to be for us in Jesus. We do not use God as a means to attain joy. God is not the shovel by which we dig for treasure. God is the treasure and joy in him is the goal. 
And that is our calling as believers in Christ. We are called to rejoice and to find our joy in Christ. We are called to rejoice in him, not because of what he has done for us, but because of who he is. And because of who he is, we can rejoice in Christ. But there is also not only the joy, the, the joy of obedience here, but there's the blessing. There's the blessing of the joy of humility here as well in our text. And what I mean by that is the blessing of humility is, do you see how different, if you take a look in the text, you will see how different David's second approach to the ark was versus David's first approach to bringing the ark up was, right? You'll notice that there's some massive differences that David approached this in completely different ways. The first time, it wasn't that he was in sin or doing anything sinful purposely, but he certainly was not following the law. He certainly wasn't obeying the words Lord and how to and, and the uh, the word of the Lord and and how he was to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and uh, he was he was certainly dancing and singing, right? But now we see a completely different view, right? Because David, at this point in our text, says that after they had gone six paces, they sacrificed. They sacrificed to the Lord. Now, the text doesn't tell us at this point what these offerings were. Later on, it tells us that when they got to Jerusalem, they offered burnt and peace offerings before the Lord. However, there is no, there is no reason to necessarily see, this, see these offerings that were being offered because it was in the plural again here at right? these offerings. They, off, they offered these offerings before the Lord. And so, therefore, burnt offering was for atonement for sin, and peace offerings were offerings of thanksgiving, right? Burnt offerings we learn about in Leviticus 1, and peace offerings we learn about in Leviticus 3. And so these were offered to the Lord as, a, as both atonement for having sinned by bringing it up irreverently and improperly the first time, as well as thanksgiving for God allowing David and the, the people of Israel to now move the ark again. And these, these offerings were, were, to, were to be a blessing. They were a blessing for, uh, for David and for the nation of Israel. But we also notice something else different about how David brings up the ark, don't we? It says that he brought up the ark wearing something. You say, well, what was he wearing? Well, he was wearing a linen ephod or an ephod, Right? You say, well, what does that matter? Well, if you know anything, you will know that the ephod, the linen ephod, was only reserved for the priests. And yet here, David, the idea of the priestly king is now introduced. This idea of the priestly king is now introduced. Flip over with me to Psalm 110. I want you to see this. Psalm 110. And for the record, I, I, I don't know about you, but I love the sound of babies. I love the sound of babies and children. But Psalm 110, it should be a, a cause of rejoicing for us as the, as the church of Jesus Christ. But Psalm 110, listen to what it says here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion 
rule uh, out of Zion, rule ye, rule ye in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not re- relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through, strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up his head. Psalm 110 was written by David. Now you say, well, I still don't see the point. Well, as as God's people, we have to put ourselves first and foremost. Yes, ultimately, this is a messianic psalm that is pointing us to Jesus. But how would the nation of Israel heard this as they read this? They would have more than likely heard it as, a, as an ultimate coming reality, but they would have also listened to it and heard it within the framework of David. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me show you what I mean. First of all, how could David take up the linen ephod? How could David do this? How could David be, act as, a, as, a, as, as the priest of God? After all, Saul had, been mur- had, had, been, had his kingdom taken away by God for doing this, for acting, as, as, ask, for acting in the role of a priest. And so now God blesses David for this. How can that possibly be? Well, you have to remember, Melchizedek was the king of Salem that we were introduced to in Genesis chapter 14. And he was the priest, as we're told, of God Most High in Genesis 14. And it was, it was, it was Melchizedek that Abraham paid tribute to and gave tithes to. That the writer of Hebrews makes a very great point about the lesser blessing the greater. But David, in taking Jerusalem and in destroying and deposing the king of Jerusalem, Jabus, actually is given and takes up the mantle of Melchizedek. Fully? No. But in a sense, he does take up the, all, the mantle of a priest of Yahweh, so that in Psalm 110, while ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews clearly does, we would need and need to understand it in the ancient Israel context that this is speaking ultimately of David and the Davidic line of kings. You say, well, I still don't quite understand your point. Well, here's my point. David becomes at this point as being represented from this point forward as a priestly king. He wears an ephod. He's later in chapter 7, he will sit before the Lord. 2 Samuel 7.18 and 2 Chronicles 7.16. No one... The Aaronic priesthood was never allowed to sit anywhere. They were never allowed to sit because their work was always continued. It was always continuous. It was always to be done over and over and over and over again. There was no stipulation in the Old Covenant for, by Yahweh, by God, to allow the king to sit before his presence in the tabernacle or in the temple. So this is an expanded understanding of what is happening and what is going on. This is an expansion of the temple. This is an expansion of the tabernacle by allowing the king himself into the presence of the Lord to sit before God. This was never 
part of what God told the nation of Israel to do. And God does not disapprove of this. God actually approves of this. David makes offerings to Yahweh as the officiating priest, both after they went six paces and later when they get to the tabernacle complex. David wears the linen ephod, as I've already said. David is allowed to move the ark of God to the mountain of God. It was where Abraham met Melchizedek. It was where Abraham offered offered his son Isaac as a substitute, but at the last minute Yahweh provided the sacrifice and offered the sacrifice in Isaac's place. It is where David would later offer himself as a sacrifice on his people's behalf after he sinned by numbering God's people in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 17 through 25. He later goes on to act in the role of a priest by blessing the people in verses 18, something that only the priesthood was supposed to do, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, right? Back in Numbers. God, though, will make a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 and promises that one greater than he will ultimately fulfill all of these promises. Ultimately, David sins in 2 Samuel 9 and cannot ultimately be fulfillment of Psalm 110. Jesus is rather the greater fulfillment of this, and yet we cannot miss the reality that David is in this moment being presented in the line of Melchizedek. David is being presented in the line of Melchizedek. And that, is, that has great implications for when you read the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the ultimate leader or the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This, you cannot, we must not miss this. Even, even, if, even if this doesn't have much much application for how we live our day-to-day lives, or some would argue that. I would argue it has great application because it has a greater understanding of what God was doing at this time and the promises that he was making that he ultimately keeps for us in Christ. And so there is the joy of humility, but then there is the misery of pride because David is not the only person that we are introduced to in this text, are we? There's another lady, there's a, there's a woman, David's first wife, the daughter of Saul, named Michael, that we're introduced to. And we'll see that they, she is offered in contrast, David representing the new, she representing the old, and, and so on and so forth. But I want to show you a couple different things, verses 20 through 23. First and foremost is that pride leads to despising the Lord's methods. Do you see what she, when she looked out the window, what did she see from, from, from her vantage point? She sees David dancing and leaping and whirling and, and shouting and singing and doing all this. And it says that she saw him and despises him in her heart. That is that she looks at him with contempt and disgust. And she even goes so far as to go out and publicly rebuke David and say, how great you have made yourself today, O king. Right? You, don't, you and I must read Michael's words with the sarcastic dripping of, of great contempt that she was saying this. And like, she wasn't just like, oh, king, you're just great. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. She challenges him with contempt, with disgust. And in doing this, 
she despises the Lord's method because what is it David says to her? He says, hey, I've done what I've done in humility and in worship of the Lord. Like, I haven't done it for you or for the women or the men or anybody else. I did it for, for the Lord. And in her despising David's humility, right, she despises the Lord. This is very clear. It's very clear that there's ultimately this final break with the Saul, the reign of Saul and the reign of, of David, the son of Jesse. Her pride in this, in, in this moment, she is the same as her father who despised the Lord, who despised the Lord's ways, who despised the Lord's methods, who despised everything about God, unless God was going to bless him with something. But notice that the, that the, that the writer here contrasts pride with humility, because notice this. Even with, with Michael, we're, we, are, we are told the tale of two windows. You say, well, there's only one window here, so I don't know where the other window comes in. If you go backwards to 1 Samuel chapter 18, you'll find that there's this first window. And there we are told that Michael, because she loved him and because she cared for him and because he was her husband, she, lo- she lovingly lowered him down to help him escape from Saul and the enemies coming to destroy David. But here we are told, for whatever reason, great, great, a great many years, a few years have passed, and now... She has rested in David's care for a little while, but now she looks at David out the window and she hates him. She hates him. And ultimately, we don't know why she does. I will point to one possible indicator, and that is this. Do you remember back when David tells Abner to bring her to him? Do you notice... Do you notice what we're told in the text that she was given? She was later given uh, to another husband, right? Um, and though it wasn't legitimate in the Lord's eyes, because obviously she was not divorced from David, right? Um, and Saul gives away, and it says that Abner brings her. What does it say of her husband? It says that she came willingly, and it says that he cried all the way to where Abner turns around, and just says, "Listen, if you don't go home, I'm gonna kill you." I think there's an indicator, and she, it says nothing of her, of her care for her husband, no weeping, no nothing. She comes willingly to the king. Now, again, does it prove anything? No, but I think it certainly does have a possibility of pointing out she was not a very nice lady. She was all about the power and all about the prestige, and this is why she rebukes David. You are not David acting like a king meaning her father. You don't act, you didn't act like my daddy. You don't act like my father. So she went from loving David to hating him. But there's a second contrast. It says that David is loved by the Lord in our text. But it's said that David is hated by Saul's daughter. And by the way, don't miss the fact that she is pointed over and over again out as Saul's daughter, not as David's wife. There's a third contrast, though, and that is Michael reproves and rebukes David for his humility. But David, and ultimately in the text we understand God himself rebukes Michael for her pride. There's a fourth contrast. David is humble and and humbles himself before the Lord, 
Michael, on the other hand, is a very proud woman. Fifthly, the maidens, David says, will be blessed, whereas Michael ultimately is cursed because she doesn't have any biological children. Now, don't misunderstand what the text is saying. It's not saying that just because you don't have children or because someone is barren that they are cursed by God. That is not what this text is saying. But rather, she was removed from David's presence and was ultimately divorced by David, set set apart, never allowed to have another husband at all, and was never blessed with offspring because of her sin. There's a seventh contrast, though, here, and that is that David restores the rightful worship of the Lord, whereas Michael apparently disregarded the Lord's worship because she was earlier connected with the what? With the teraphim. You say, well, what's the teraphim? Household idols, household gods. She was not a worshiper of the Lord. There's an eighth contrast here. Michael was concerned about appearances. It becomes very apparent because she says, look how you've acted, David. You've acted like a fool. But David was concerned about one thing, and that was the Lord's glory. That's all David cared about. We must be very careful, my brothers and sisters. We must be very careful that we, as we approach the Lord, our attitudes are of that of David and not of Michael. Proud, self-assured, caring for prestige and self-righteousness, Michael, or humble and seeking to honor the Lord in every sense as David. But let me say this. Let me say before I go on to apply this text for us, I want to show you Jesus here. Because it is interesting that Jesus, as we'll see in 2 Samuel 7 as we get there, Jesus is the greater fulfillment. David could not keep the covenant. David could not do this, but the Lord did it for him by providing the ultimate king and Lord who would do this and fulfill this, as promised in Psalm 110. It's interesting that as we read in the text here, David comes bringing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the temple, into the tabernacle complex, into the city of Jerusalem. And it was the Lord Jesus himself as the holy sacrifice given by the Father who entered into the holy city and offered himself as the final and ultimate sacrifice for our sin. It is David who, who ascended the hill of the Lord in bringing the ark of God to the tabernacle. But it is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who worthily ascended the hill, not as, the, not, as, not as having to be brought there, but willingly going there to die outside of the city in reproach and disgrace for our sins and the sins of all who will repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. David led a joyous procession into God's tabernacle, but it is Jesus himself who leads us as the final sacrifice and king who leads us, God's king, into God's holy presence. It is Jesus who offered the sacrifice of himself so that we could come by faith through grace to Christ, to to the Father through himself. It is Jesus who triumphantly entered Jerusalem as the king in his first coming, only to be rejected by the people of Israel, but who in coming again will, in fact, display all of his glory. Jesus clothed himself as a servant, though he was the priestly king. And Jesus even now feeds and distributes his gifts to his people. 
This is a blessing that God gives to us. So how do we apply all of this? Because right? all of this is great information, right? Like, oh, yeah, poof, learned some good stuff at church today. But how do we apply this? Well, let me say this first and foremost. First and foremost, we've learned the importance of biblical worship. As I pointed out last week, I want to just reiterate again. We need to, whatever we see in the Word, we need to do. Whatever we don't see in the Word, we don't need to be doing. And so things like our worship should be covered in things like prayers and congregational singing, a collection, right? Scriptures being read, the Word of God being preached, baptism, the Lord's Supper, these things being celebrated. But not only the importance of biblical worship, but also the worship of the Lord just in general must be done. It should be done with great joy. What do you mean by that? Well, listen, there, there are two types of dangers when it comes to worship. The first, and, and I, I will agree, right, like, like the dangers of emotionalism, right? When you need fog machines and laser lights and productions like, to get you going, there, there's a problem there. But there's also another problem, another ditch that we want to avoid. And that is, that is dry, dead orthodoxy, where we just say, yeah, we believe some things and write things about God, but we're no better than the Pharisees in our application of the law of God or the word of God, right? And so we want to be careful of both ditches, over-emotion, no emotion, careless enthusiasm, or dry orthodoxy. We want to be careful of both ditches because, and I want you to hear me carefully, emotion has its proper and important place in our worship. Now, that would look different in your life than it would necessarily in mine, but it does have a place if we don't feel anything in our worship, we have a problem. I would also say that our worship as God's people, and listen to me, I want to apply this idea because a lot of, pe a lot of people hear me saying our worship and they think of the local church context, and you should, right? You should think of the local church context, but you should also think of family worship. You should also think of your worship as you before, sit before the Lord and you worship. Right, so whether it be dads or grandpas leading in family worship, whether it be uh, whether it be um, um, us leading ourselves into the presence of God in prayer and and singing and 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 reading of scriptures and things like that, or the local church, right? Uh, we need to properly understand that our worship must be Christ-centered. That is, that we draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right, our redemption in Christ is the focal point in our worship. At the end of the day, our songs, our prayers, our preaching, our reading of scriptures, our everything should, at the end of the day, point us to Christ. And we should say, Jesus is great. Worship, then, is to be done for God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm afraid that even in churches that we say confess that Jesus saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? It is imperative that we properly understand that even those who have a good confession can, if they are not careful, and we can, if we're not careful, drift in our worship. We can drift in our worship or our focus, so that our worship becomes about us or about other things, but not about Christ. 
And we cannot allow ourselves or our families or our church to become distracted in its focus in worship. Now, I'm not saying that we have. I'm just saying that we have to guard against becoming distracted or being distracted in any way from, from the worship of the Lord. And I would say to us that as God's people, that as we do this, as we seek this out, we must do this as, through, the spirit, through a spirit of humility, right? It should grip us. The greatness of God should grip our hearts. The greatness of God must grip our hearts. There is no place for pride or arrogance or self-importance. Look, uh, let me just say this. Like, I have been to churches, maybe you have too. I've been to churches where every, every pew has a plaque on it dedicated to somebody. Every, every, every window, everything, like it's so, you know, it's not just the fellowship hall. It's, it's, it's Uncle Bubba's fellowship hall because he gave the money to do this. Right? No, there's no place for that kind of silliness. Right? We are not called to focus on ourselves or our importance or our, the, way, the way we approach God is to be with humility and with grace, knowing that God is the God of grace for us in Christ. And so we approach him with humility, acknowledging his supremacy and his greatness and his worth to be praised and be blessed forever. So I want to challenge us as believers in Christ, as we, as we walk into this week, my prayer is that we as God's people would think deeply about Christ and all of his work and the fulfillment of all of the, promised, uh, the, promised, uh, the promises that he has given us in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the New and what that looks like for us. And as we do that, let, as we're gripped by God's greatness and the supremacy of God in Christ for us, I pray that you and I, that we would be ushered into a greater understanding of worship and service to Christ in all that we do and say. And so let me, with that said, let me pray for us and then we will sing. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to be focused upon Christ that, that no matter what we do, no matter how we sing or, 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 or no matter what songs we sing, that it's about Christ. And it's about Christ. Pray that our focus would be upon Christ. I pray that as David celebrated and rejoiced and danced before you, Lord, that our hearts would, at the very least, our hearts would do these things. That we would rejoice and sing and praise God for all that you have done for us in Christ. Father, we thank you because we're able to assemble here under the authority of Christ. And my prayer is that, that those who may be here who do not know Christ, who perhaps have thought they've known Christ, or perhaps they've walked uh, in a confession of faith, but their pride and their arrogance says otherwise as they walk before you, that you would cause them to see their need for Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, that, that you would assure us in Christ. You would help us to know that if, if we have truly confessed faith in Christ, that there is no one who can pluck us out of your hand. And that the Father who is greater than all, that he, he holds us fast and that no one can pluck us out of his hand. And so now, God, help us. Help us as we apply the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, take our hymn books, and turn to number 42. Let's sing the first two verses, number 42. So stand while we sing.
power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ransom from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Praise God for him, all blessings fall. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Savior. 